0: Welcome to the Cybersecurity and Cloud Podcast, the podcast where we learn from cybersecurity experts how to stay safe, private, and secure on the cloud and in code. CSCP is hosted by Francesco Cipollone, your cybersecurity friend with a passion for all things cyber and sharing stories of other professionals with you. Let's dive in.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Cybersecurity and Cloud Podcast. This is your host, Francesco, and today we have a long-awaited friend. We've been chatting about doing this for a long time before COVID, and we're finally, we finally here. Yeah, so I'm, I'm happy to, to have with me Frank Kim, that is the Program Director for the Leadership Course and also a fellow uh, since, um, cloud security professional. So, Frank, thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, why don't you tell your audience what you what's your background, what you how, how did you start uh, with SANS and generating cybersecurity, and then we can dive deeper. Yeah, awesome, Francesco, Hey, thanks a lot for
2: having me. It's great to be here. Finally great to be on the show. And uh, yeah, just in terms of uh, a little bit of background, you know, as you mentioned, you know I'm with this currently with the Sans Institute. I've been teaching, writing courses with SANS for, man, time goes by quick. It's been 15 years now. Wow. And I, you know, I'd always done stuff with SANS kind of on the side as I had other day jobs over the years, helping to build out different teams and different programs, was the CISO here at SANS for a little bit. And as you mentioned, I currently lead our CISO leadership curriculum and our cloud security curriculum. You know, aside from the work that I do with SANS, you know, I also do some security consulting and also do some startup advisory and investing uh, work as
1: well. So yeah,
2: that's kind of my main areas of focus
1: right now. Fantastic. And how did you, you know, in, in your first role, in your first job, how did you decide to stumble across in, in cyber and security? What was your first experience with cyber? Oh,
2: yeah, yeah. Good question. You know, I actually started my career as a developer a long time ago, did way too much Java programming, wrote a bunch of arguably probably really horrendous code And, uh, you know, when I was a developer, I would, you know, find vulnerabilities, not just in other people's code, but to be honest, in the code that I had written myself, there would be some, you know, issues that would arise, we would have some incidents. Somehow, right, I became one of the people or one of the, the person that would have to respond to those incidents and fix the vulnerabilities and things like that. And, uh, you know, it just it, I think this is a kind of a common story for us in the security industry that naturally led me to getting more and more into security, doing a lot of uh, pen tests, application assessments, code reviews, led me to building out different teams from a consulting perspective and led to slowly, over time, you know, increased responsibility in other areas, helping to uh, yeah. build out the programs overall. And uh, yeah, you know, in a sense, I kind of got into security by accident a little bit and so. <laughs> Somewhere along that journey, I had taken some SANS classes and had some certs and I was on this SANS mailing list and somebody Mm -hmm. at the time sent a message to the mailing list and said, hey, does anybody here know application security was in its relatively early days and, you know, coding and development? I said, yeah, sure I do. And they said, well, great. We're working on this new class. Would you like to contribute to it? So I said, oh, okay, sounds good. And, uh, so there was a few other people involved at the time, and there was an outline, a syllabus, and I picked certain sections to, to write. So I wrote the slides, wrote the corresponding hands-on exercises, nice. and I handed them over. Well, you know, I thought that was kind of it. A couple months, a few months go by, somebody else from SANS reaches out and says, Frank, well, you know, we've got this class, but we don't have anybody to teach it. Would you like to, to give it a shot? And I said, uh, immediately, I said, yes, sure. But to be honest, internally, you know, I was, uh, I was terrified because, you know, I had never <laughs> done big public presentations before. Sure, internally to the team. Yeah, and uh, but, you know, I immediately said yes, because I knew that, hey, I, that, when I felt that uncomfortable, it's probably something that I should do. So I got into security kind of by accident, got into SANS and teaching a little bit by uh, accident as well. And fortunately, things just, one thing led to another, and hey, Here we are. It kind of all worked out up to this point.
1: (laughs) And those are the best stories, I think, when when you stumble across. But I really like a point that you made. That is when you felt that gut feeling that you're scared, it's probably a good thing to actually jump on because I always encourage everybody to do public speaking. It's terrifying. And as you can see, and, and probably as you can tell to our audience, you never get over it. It's always, you get experienced by it, but you never get over the terrifying feeling. And yeah. maybe what were the tip to maybe get over that? What were the tip that you would say somebody that need to start and need to deliver a presentation maybe on, on their first conference or on the first training, internal or external? What, what would be your top 10 advice or your top three? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, before I get to that, you, know, you just made me think about something
2: else is, you know, over the years, I've had not a lot, but some people, you know, we have our career discussion with mm-hmm. people on the team and things like that. And not a lot, but sometimes people will say, you know, hey, Frank, well, you know, I would like to try to figure out how to get your job, right? And I say, well, hey, that's, <laughs> that's great, right? Because, well, let's talk about it. Let's figure it out. And, you know, to be honest, hey, from a selfish perspective, if I'm doing the exact same thing in two years, three years, five years, then probably I'm not growing. And if I'm not growing, well, hey, right. you, you know, the team members might not be growing either, and, uh, you know, so trying to find situations where you are uncomfortable and, you know, circling back to what you asked about kind of teaching and as public speaking is, you know, hey, I, it's really, I'll, I'll tell you up front, it's kind of that mundane, common advice. Mm-hmm. They just say, hey, practice, do it again, do it over and over again. And, you know, hey, internally, I was really nervous in those early years, many years ago. And over time, though, I've probably presented now in front of people for literally, I don't know, thousands of hours if you add it all up. <laughs> And it wasn't until some number of years of actually doing it that I felt that I found my voice or my approach or what I was comfortable with, right? Or where it felt more natural. And it was only after a certain number of hours. And really it's that practice. And, you know, whether it be in front of your friends, in front of your family, doing, you know, sessions, practicing a presentation. So going through that process of kind of applying for industry talks and conference talks and putting the slides together, and presenting them to others, you know, it got to a point where my family will even make fun of me. We'll have some, you know, small, you know, arguably in the grand scheme of things, normal, meaningless family gathering, and my family right. will joke. It's like Frank, are you gonna are you gonna give a speech at this gathering, <laughs> right? So you have another opportunity to practice.
1: <laughs> so y- you teach about cybersecurity to your family. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you all became security leader. Right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, you know, side, side note here, and it's without my doing. You know, yeah, it wasn't talking to them about security, but it's out of necessity. You know, mm-hmm. we turn on the screen time password for my my kids. My one of my daughters, she's sitting there trying to brute force guess the screen time pass passcode. At one point, she even created out of the blue, I didn't even mention it. She created her own basic cipher uh, that she wrote wow. on her whiteboard as well. So yeah, it was pretty. It was pretty cool.
1: So slowly but surely, the, the cybersecurity knowledge seep out of Frank don't family. I can't take really credit for anything. <laughs> no, that's that's great. And uh, we have a tradition on the on the show that we try to 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 look at the industry as a whole. So, what is your opinion on on how is the industry changing? How are the two words that you're teaching, application security and cloud security, slowly converging and colliding? And how do you see the industry as a whole going?
2: Yeah, yeah, really, really good question. You know, I think um, in terms of kind of the tools and the processes and everything, you know, we're at a stage where it's all about automation and APIs and and services and kind of that traditional approach where we in security are seen as the ones that say no all the time. Well, why did we, the security (laughs) leaders, say no? Well, because we were afraid. We didn't think we'd have enough time to correctly assess the risk and assess the the vulnerabilities in a given system, but now, hey, things are moving at a much faster speed. You know, I feel kind of fortunate having started off my career in the with the, as a developer with that right. development and and engineering background, uh, because now, now a lot of the things where the industry is today, from an automation and DevOps and CI/CD and uh, software security perspective. In some of those things, you know, we, I, you know, I experienced some of those things in the early days, and it's really just, as you said, a, an evolution of our capabilities up to this point today. And so, really, the the cloud is enabling a, a lot of this, and you know, every organization, by chance or by choice, right, is going to become a, a cloud native organization at
1: some point in time. Right, and everything is turning into code. Right, exactly. Yeah, and it is interesting that we always had good coding. Well, coding practice. We always had application security, but only I would say recently I, I notice and you know argue with me and correct me if I'm wrong or or let me know what you think. But just in the last two years, we had like an enormous acceleration on and focus on application security with the. the, the this bomb all fanfare uh, that the U.S. government has started, and then everything converging effectively being cold. But it's not new; we just got attention into it. I guess. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: You know, hey, with the uh, further adoption of cloud and with infrastructure as service, platform as a service, some of those things. You know, hey, we a lot of times now with cloud don't have to worry about physical security and some of those layers of the infrastructure stack. And arguably, right, things are more secure in that in that area. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that the attackers are gonna go away. They're gonna turn their attention to, well, how else can they get into our systems environment get right. our data? And that naturally is, well, why do we move to the cloud? To deploy application functionality, features, services, faster, quicker, more effectively, more securely. Hey, well, that leaves open that whole application layer there's a much more focus from a threat perspective on the application stack, the APIs, the services, and, and so on. And you know, I'm kind of dating myself here a little bit, right? But you know I remember first coming across cross-site scripting many, many years ago, and I you know got some JavaScript to run on the browser, steal some data, and I went to my boss, and I said, hey, you know, look at this. This is kind of a big deal. They're like, oh, no, don't worry about it. Just keep working on what you're, what you're working on. And I was busy, so I kind of put it off to the side. I mentally bookmarked it, but, you know, hey, that's, a you know, an indication of, of how far we've come over time in terms of kind of, hey, now we've got containers and Kubernetes and serverless and, you know, all of these other areas to secure. So that's, that's what makes this fun. And
1: also terrifying because I wanted to touch on on that uh, on that you just said you know cloud container application security do you think is is terrifying for somebody coming into the space from maybe the university and having recently graduated and all of a sudden facing from a cyber security perspective this enormous world i would say me and you I, I come as well from a software development background and we were lucky because we kind of grew into it uh, and into this knowledge and into this new world. But for the new generation, don't you think it's terrifying to get into?
2: You know, the uh, I think it can definitely be overwhelming when you're starting because, you know, security, that's what's, it's multidisciplinary. It's cross-disciplinary. You need to know engineering. You need to know development. You need to know coding, infrastructure, operating systems, you know, the cloud services, everything. You know, you made me think about something. Is A few months ago, I was talking to uh, somebody that spoke at one of our summits. And uh, he did a great talk. About uh cloud and Azure and Google Cloud, and uh, you know I talked to him afterwards and check this out. He's a sophomore in college in computer mm. science, and he said, you know what? And I know many universities have added more and more security, especially at the master's level. But he said that the program that he is in, that you know, hey, we're learning about computer science and the corresponding theory, but in his words, we're not learning enough practical stuff. We're not learning right. about software development. We're not learning what people will do out in the corporate world, and he said, we're not learning about security. So that's an indication, like you said, that, hey, you know, a lot of times there's that uh, gap in experience, right? That could mm-hmm. potentially be possible for new people coming in. But to his credit, right, he's got internships, he's got projects that he's working on to learn and focus on cyber outside of what he's formerly learning in school. Nice. and
1: sounds. <laughs> Sorry, I had to say that. <laughs> hey, well, appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's, it's a well-recognized set of, of training and, and expertise and uh, otherwise I wouldn't put it out there. And also, you guys put a lot of very good material out there. So a lot of the leadership training, a lot of the leadership course, uh, including uh, some of the module are are out there. So I always respect an organization that is trying to, to do more for open knowledge and open security. So hence hence why I'm happy to, to mention it. but. Tell me more about your courses and and the two kind of program work that you're leading. How do you see those evolving from the time that you started in uh, in SANS to to today? Yeah, well,
2: you know, SANS overall has been around since 1989. It's been a long time. You know, I think I mentioned Mm -hmm. I've been involved for not that long, but about 15 years now. And SANS has always been seen and hopefully still is as a place to go for deep technical training. You know, we also started the, the leadership curriculum. So not everybody um, that I talked to knows that in addition to our deep technical training, we also have training and multiple classes, a whole curriculum for CISOs and security leaders. I was talking to a, a friend, a colleague that's the CISO at a large Fortune 50 organization who's familiar with, you know, the various technical areas. Right. And he said, wow, I had no idea that there was these leadership offerings as well. You know, you and I were separately chatting about this in terms of the free mm-hmm. resources, in terms of webcasts and summits and, you know, archive and tools and uh, and so on. You know, one of the things that we try to give out, for example, is uh, we've got a uh, vulnerability management maturity model. It's in the form of a poster, kind of follows a process that we suggest that people might mm-hmm. follow to build a mature vulnerability management program, but broken out into different areas of to, to think about in terms of, hey, what could you do, uh, you know, ideally as you are moving along that maturity continuum. And, you know, one common thread that I see both on the leadership side and the cloud side is that that people are at different phases of their journey in terms of progressing as a leader within their organization, within their career. And also people are progressing in their journey from a cloud security perspective. You know, organizations are progressing in their journey to digital transformation, right? Buzzwords here. But, uh, (laughs) you know, and people are trying to figure that out along the way um, as well. And, you know, most organizations have by, again, by chance or by choice, they've become multi-cloud. So now mm-hmm. security teams have to not just know one cloud, not just know AWS, but a lot of times they need to know AWS, Azure, and GCP. Right. Now, usually there might be a primary, but, you know, this is adding to the complexity that you talked about in terms of making sense of all that from a security team perspective.
1: Right. And that's, that's a very good point, and i like to touch again on the maturity model because it's I, I love a maturity model because sometimes in security we say you need to be up here and up to the maximum level of security, but it's a journey towards that maturity level. So every organization that put out there, it's a journey, it's a step to step approach. I think it's, it's the most beneficial uh, approach as it guides organization and guides team and and don't just say you know you don't know security, you don't you're not secure enough, but it's like you're not secure enough. To this standard yet, but there are steps step into it, and I really like right. that that approach. And, and it doesn't mean you always have to get to level five, right? right. And now,
2: you know, I've seen some organizations that hey, they most people don't get to level five in anything, and if you do get to level five in something, it probably might be an indication that you've overinvested in that particular <laughs> capability, right? right. But that, that's why it's a roadmap, and over time, as the threat landscape changes and the business landscape changes, what was level five before, hey, might be an element of it, might be level three, you know, in mm-hmm. some years from now.
1: Right. And and it's a constant evolution as everything else. But in the multi-cloud world and, and in this handoff kind scenario, don't you consider that maybe we have evolved, as you rightfully say before, we have left some stuff that now are almost secure by default, we need to be mindful of but we need to refocus our attention on other stuff that are more fragile, like the application security stuff, or maybe the user aspect and the human aspect that has been exacerbated by this move to the cloud because certain areas has become very, very tough to attack. Hence why the attacker have refocused on application security, maybe data security run somewhere and, and the whole lot. What do you think? Uh, you, you know, hey, you mentioned a couple of things and important
2: points there. One, at the application layer, you know, this is why, of course, hey, it's so important to automate security into your CI/CD pipeline, understand what your DevOps and engineering teams are doing, because things are changing, not just on mm-hmm. a day-to-day basis, but on a, you know, minute-to-minute, hour-to-hour <laughs> basis as well, right? And so automating that, and the key theme here is automation. And you just mentioned human risks, right? Those mm-hmm. human risks, it's not just about uh, awareness training and phishing attacks anymore. We're seeing, you know, in the... Uh, in the incident response space, for some years now, we've talked about the different security orchestration, automation, and response solutions to automate different playbooks. So just right. like we have playbooks on the IR side, hey, we should have some playbooks on the the across the different uh, levels of the stack, whether it be at the network level, the infrastructure level, the application level, but also hey,
1: the the, the user, the user level, the person, the human level as well. No, that's that's a, that's a great point, and. How would you suggest, you know, you lead a lot of these leadership training, how how would you suggest that an organization that is maybe have done cloud for a little while, how does an organization assess their posture or, or their journey? Where do, where do you think is the best reference or the best way to assess where you are in that security journey in the cloud? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Hey, great question is, you know, definitely we've seen that uh, when you're just starting out, both as an individual or as an organization, you're trying to build those foundational capabilities, knowledge mm-hmm. of the cloud, those essentials, the fundamentals. But then hey, you need to go into the deeper dive is, OK, how do you automate this? You mentioned infrastructure as code earlier. Hey, what does this look like from a Terraform, from a cloud formation perspective? How do you write all of that stuff, all of those directives into code? Mm-hmm. Under, number one, as the security team. Understanding what your engineering teams are actually doing, what that code looks like, getting access to those repositories. But then number two, making sure that you've got that capability on the security team, right, right? That people can have do those things themselves for the benefit of security and to interact with those engineering teams. But then once you've got a decent handle around what are the right configurations, what are the right settings, what's the right infrastructure, how do you, you know, how do you how do you automate all of this? I've now seen a, a need to, for people to step back and say, ah, mm-hmm. well, what's our architecture and what's our <laughs> architecture in relation to the threats and the business requirements that we have? Sometimes, I think as we've seen, the architecture, if you will, evolves kind of mm-hmm. you know, somewhat in an ad hoc basis, right? Things need to be done. So you just kind of build them out and deploy them. Well, now we need to step back and say, okay, well, how do we scale this across right. the enterprise? Whether it be, you know, an AWS organizations, whether it be service control policies, you know how do you put some guardrails around this in a consistent way now in a complex large enterprise that's easier said than done but having that blueprint from a mm-hmm. technical security architecture perspective and then having that business view right is really where i see organizations right now a lot of times are saying ah well we need to focus on that
0: this episode is brought to you by the generosity of appsec phoenix limited AppSec helps startups and enterprises solve complex software security problems by using smart data aggregation and complex machine learning software. Discover how AppSec Phoenix helps CISO and developers remove friction and maximize the use of DevSecOps professionals at www.appsecphoenix.com. AppSec Phoenix is the new and smart dev-first way to manage your software vulnerability. Follow the tag, hashtag AppSecSmart.
1: Now, I really, I really like two points that you made. There, there are guardrail and security defaults and blueprints that are super, super important. And, and a lot of the time are out there. AWS, Azure have written tons and tons of, on blueprint and how to do things securely. The Cloud Security Alliance as well have contributed enormously on that model. How do you think it's, an organization can get started with a blueprint? What are the blueprint? What are the, the, the kind of key default factors that you will normally put in there? And why would an organization you know, make the case of this? Because a lot of the architectural improvements, and I have a story on like next to it, are difficult, uh, are difficult to justify and put an ROI next to it and hence make the case of it.
2: Yeah, you know, really good point. You know, it's we're not starting from a greenfield, right? There's always mm-hmm. something there before. And uh, migrating from one approach to the another, it could be time consuming, can be costly. And, you know, it's really taking a step back and saying, hey, where can we bite, a, you know, eat the elephant one bite at a time? Where does it make sense to actually start, right? Start that particular yeah. project. But, you know, you you piqued my interest here. I'm curious, what, what is your story
1: related to this? So I was speaking with, and, and this is in, in in the concept of a large startup, and I was speaking with um, a friend of mine that runs the whole IT and he was saying there are a lot of monolith and a lot of architectural elements that are still there. And you know changing it is, is extremely expensive in terms of engineering time. So how do you make the case of accelerating that if you even make the case? And sometimes is security blueprint where you can take that piece and maybe write a blueprint around it and say, this is how you do things securely. And then you say, if you want to do this, over and over and over, we actually write the perfect way from an engineering perspective as building block on how to do things. And that was his way to actually propose an improvement that actually didn't generate an ROI, but generate a way in the future to save time from an engineering perspective with security defaults like blueprint building blocks. And that was, I think was a brilliant way to sell an architecture improvement that are very hard to sell into an organization like startups that is usually focused on feature, feature, features because they bring ROI to the organization. Mm-hmm. Hey, that's a, that's a great example. You know, it, you know, It's kind of highlighting the fact that
2: everything is an evolution, it's a journey. Mm-hmm. We're not going to get to the ideal state architecture tomorrow. You know, it, it makes me think of uh, zero trust is arguably zero trust and zero trust principles are maybe the ideal or idyllic, idealistic version of what an architecture could, should look like. But with mm-hmm. the cloud, the cloud services are helping us enable and implement various elements of zero trust. Now, the catch is from current state to future state, we're never going to get there immediately or maybe even 100%. But zero trust is kind of that technical, technical roadmap for improving your security architecture.
1: Right. But I have, and you know, with the Cloud Security Alliance, we we, we, we published recently the blueprint of Zero Trust, because there is a lot of demystification and a lot of buzzwords right now from a marketing perspective around Zero Trust. And sadly enough, sometimes Zero Trust is dumped down as just network access or secure network (laughs) access. Unfortunately, there is much, much more to it than that. But what has been the driver behind Zero Trust, do you think? What do you think is the driver, especially of recent?
2: You know, for me, kind of thinking about it from a leadership or CISO perspective, it's Trying to get a handle around some common way of thinking about the complexity that's within our, under our umbrella, within our program is there's all of these different elements here. And there was never necessarily a unifying theme or approach. You know, we talk about the applications and the network and infrastructure, the, yeah, and so on, but in the data and zero trust gives us some principles. It's kind of like the, the core values, if you will. Um, and this is why, you know, as you said, if you've got a vendor that comes to you and says, well, hey, if you buy our thing, you'll have zero trust or we'll implement zero trust. We, <laughs> right. we know that's you should walk away from that vendor probably. So um,
1: question the sanity. <laughs>
2: <right>. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But just having that mental model around some of those kind of core values from uh, mm-hmm. from that perspective, I think is what's what's useful in terms of driving the future direction.
1: Right. And if, if I were a so. You know, and I have on the plates. You know, the candy shop of do I do zero trust, or do I do good security practice, or do I do you know maybe reduce my vulnerability landscape around software security, uh, cloud security? Where do you start? You know, it's 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 a lot to, to I guess handle and tackle. into terms move initiative for a CISO to decide. Okay, do I follow the buzzword or do I go back to the basic with you know fixing stuff and creating architectural blueprint? What do you think? How the, does a CISO you know demonstrate leadership to his board and say, you know, this is important, this is less important, this is a password, this is not a password? Because unfortunately, the, the board right now are being hit by zero trust everything, and is it's kind of a no-brainer cell from a CISO. But does that actually solve the real basic? Yeah, you know, and, you know, and I don't think that they're necessarily mutually exclusive, right? When
2: you've got your blueprint, right. your architecture, you're implementing, you know, various zero trust approaches and principles. But you mentioned the key thing is that we right now we're kind of talking from a with a technical slant, right? Mm-hmm. In my board presentations and board meetings, executive meetings, I don't think I've ever mentioned the words zero trust, right? That's probably right. not something that I will mention to the board, right? And the other way that I like to think about it as a program as a whole, is that there are different things that we do every day that keep the lights on, keep the wheels on the bus going, all the operational activities that we have to do um, to maintain our current security posture. But if you're doing only 100% of those keep the lights on activities, well, I would argue then from a security and a leadership perspective, you're not doing the right thing for the organization. You need to step back and say, well, what are the 20%, let's say, activities that are seen as the transform the business activities that are aligned with your key initiatives, that are aligned with the next big projects that are that meet your strategic objectives? And it's those that you want to highlight and show how that's important. Now, it's at a high level, it's easy to say, well, we're securing the cloud to support digital transformation, but we need to get a little bit finer grained and say, well, is this supporting our our revenue generating website? Is this Mm -hmm. because of availability? Is this because uh, it's supporting our uh, main member portal? Whatever it might be, right, we've got to make those simple connections to the actual crown jewels themselves.
1: I I really like that approach. I really like how you focus on refocus the activity on business value and protecting the crown jewel and business value. But how do you get that data? Because a a lot of that information is usually contextual. And one of the issues that they see consistently is, you know, the lack of contextualization around vulnerability. Usually there is a lot of talk about millions of vulnerability across the space, but it's it's, it's more of a talk about volumetrics rather than intelligence activity around what are really the problems to solve. And then how do we drive both resolution of problem, like, let's solve the problem in itself, and then how can we avoid that with architectural changes that enable us to get to the future? What do you think, how do you, how do we enable the organization to get to that stage, to a more contextual view and risk view on problem and vulnerability across the board? Yeah, yeah. Hey, you know, you're right that it's really hard. You know, hey, we
2: mentioned that we started our careers as technical people. And when I was, uh, you know, early in my career, I was hands down, heads on keyboard, hands on keyboard, looking at my screen. I had no idea what was going on around me, to be honest. <laughs> you know, and as a technical person, and, you know, moving through the organization, what I see other technical people too, is that, hey, we, a lot of times we don't understand how the business works. Now, hey, it's not just about, hey, make more money, but, and, you know, if, if I were to, if you were to be dropped in a new fortune 100 organization and in charge of security, Right. Well, what's the first thing that you would do? You know, you're going to be inundated with this mountain of PII, uh, PCI related information, other regulatory requirements, this mountain of systems and data. And the question is, well, what do you do? What do you do first? Mm-hmm. What do you, what's most important? And I think that's where a lot of security leaders, we get overwhelmed. And even moving right. to the cloud, we get overwhelmed with configuration settings, services. What, how do we use these various solutions? But we also need to spend that 20% of time that I mentioned stepping back and trying to understand the business is Unfortunately, a lot of technical folks, you know, hey, myself is uh, included. There's times where we didn't in- understand the business, right? And it's not, it, it, so you gotta constantly be on the search to figure out what is most important to the organization. Is it uptime, is it availability? Is it the secrecy of the vendor requirements? Is it the right. um, the drug formula? Whatever is the most important, then that's where you wanna start to focus your attention. And then to your point, finally circling back to the vulnerabilities, that's how you prioritize what you do from a vulnerability management perspective. I've been in organizations where we had millions, millions yeah. of open vulnerabilities. We can never fix them all. But we had to chip away and prioritize at what was the most important.
1: Right. And there is a lot of buzz and a lot of talk about you know, prioritization right now because the vulnerability are just getting exponentially higher and higher. Not that they weren't there, but they were there before. I think we're we, we surfacing them a bit more. But the challenge of is that we're surfacing without context, without awareness, without the business lens that enable us to focus on the ones that are actually important. And always, I'm, I'm sometimes controversial that says, I don't want to solve all the vulnerability. I just want to solve the 1% of vulnerability is going to get organization hacked.
2: Yeah. Hey, I agree with that. Uh, you know, I, I agree with that direction. And, you know, in, in, in a prior life, you know, I've even done something as simple as, hey, we all know the CVSS score. But even done something simple as our ranking from one to 10 is this finance, this is HR, this is you know mm-hmm. the consumer-facing app. And then based on what we think we understand from conversations with business leaders, is we give them a rank, 10, 7, 5, and so on. And just adding that to the calculation of the CVSS score helped us start a basic right. reprioritization.
1: Yeah, and, and it's a business focused reprioritization that they really like. So is that part of the vulnerability management uh, maturity model, or is that the business it, evolution of it? <laughs> you know, hey, it is, it is part of that because, you know, the
2: process that we talked about is, well, hey, you've mm-hmm. got to prepare, you've got to identify the scanning part, you know, which I think arguably is the easiest. You've got to analyze, communicate, and treat, right? So the analyze part is related to the prioritization mm-hmm. that we we're talking about. So that's a big component of it. Exactly.
1: Right. And then on the, other, on the other layer that maybe is the one that is less talk about is how do we, in, in, in this transformation period where teams and, and dev teams are, are very independent, how do we make the case that each one is responsible of its own unit of compliance, unit of security, rather than saying, okay, vulnerability management is a problem for security rather than our problem. How do we, how do we transform? How do we help organization? moving towards that shift that enable a very scalable application security, cloud security, vulnerability management problem.
2: Yeah, you know, I just mentioned uh, communicate, communicating about Mm -hmm. vulnerabilities just in passing. And I think to me in security, um, there's two really hard jobs. Is one, you know, heading up the SOC. That's a hard job because there's always something going on. There's always issues arising. And then two, vulnerability management is really hard because, Mm -hmm. hey, the head of vulnerability management has to wrangle so many cats within the organization you're talking about how do you ha- how do you start to move a cat in a certain direction well the cat's going to want to go where the cat wants to go and uh, <laughs> part of it is the communication so it's not one simple thing one single thing it's the metrics the data comparing right how's the vulnerability escape rate how's the vulnerability percent detected what phase it's detected in which parts of the pipeline comparing that to peer organizations right is it within threshold are you meeting your slas from a patching perspective? What's the corresponding risk that's associated with that particular severity of vulnerability? So I think a communication is a part of it, but then including them in the process. For years now in the industry, we've been talking about gates versus guardrails, right? Mm -hmm. We We want to favor, we want to prefer the gates. Instead of us in security going and saying, hey, you must switch to this more secure thing. We say, hey, here are the outcomes we're trying to achieve right? Outcome of certain SLA, certain vulnerabilities, certain capabilities, output, encoding, whatever it might be. Hey, based on the tech stack that you're using in your DevOps team, what are some options? Let's come up with some options together. What's the secure by default framework? Is there something that we can write ourselves? Is there something that we can use off the shelf and see if that will help to solve a swath of those uh, existing vulnerabilities? And then, right, they're bought in. So then it becomes a little bit easier then to include them, include vulnerability discussions in their uh, regular workflows, in their uh, sprints, in their uh, issue tracking
1: systems. I really so like it, that approach. I think that that's that's profoundly that's profound and significant approach on organizational complexity. Is traditionally what's was dragging was blocking a lot of these initiatives and enabling organization to actually own fundamentally their own vulnerability and make, instead of making it a security problem, security being an enabler and a champion in, in solving their business problem and their business security problem into modern way that you know, all of a sudden resolve tons of vulnerability or like if you have tons of the, the, the very old cross-site scripting or other input validation issues, hey, there is an OSP library for that and 10 teams can adopt their library and you know maybe not solve all the problem but cut by 90% the XSS problem and things like that. And I think that's that's a very profound way that organization can change their attitude. But what have you seen from a leader perspective as the best practice or, or the single advice or, or the single methodology of advice on on changing the dials, on helping organization get more, maybe teams more ownership of these problems instead of security is the one that go and fix stuff. Yeah. You know, I've always tried to
2: try to strive for a place where I'm, hey, putting myself out of a job, like, hey, we want to get to a point where the processes are at a point where, hey, I, I don't matter, right? But, uh, and that means that the teams themselves are mm-hmm. taking care of it, right? And you're building a security aware and a risk aware culture. I've seen situations, I mentioned this quite a lot where I've seen the CISO leaves or some of the key people leave and the security team and processes kind of slowly start to disintegrate because they were kind of holding it together by maybe sometimes force of sheer will, right? Or based on their personality. (laughs) But that just indicates that it wasn't sustainable. There wasn't a sustainable process and there wasn't a sustainable culture. And so really I think is just, yeah, getting their buy-in is that our job as the security leader, you know, one of my mentors is a guy by the name of Steve Katz. And uh, maybe you know him, he's known as the world's first CISO because he was the CISO at Citigroup in the 90s. And he said when he first started at Citigroup, he said, you know, a big organization, he went around basically for the first six months, he flew around the world meeting all of the stakeholders to understand their business, understand their needs, understand their motivations and personalities. Mm-hmm. And part of this is, you know, uh, there, I have another colleague at Sands, and she, she says, what's everybody's favorite radio station? Right. do you know what it is it's no w-i-f-m what's in it for me <laughs> right? i love so, that <laughs> so the vulnerability management whoever's leading that that's a hard job because you always have to be thinking what's in it for me or what's in it for them right mm-hmm. what's in it for the ops team what's in it for the devops team what's in it for the business owner of that application what's in it for the it team and you have to give them some incentive understand their incentives so that they can move this
1: thing, move this thing along. I I love that. And and I think we should hire more salespeople into uh, application security programs. (laughs) Yeah. Well, every
2: security program needs some sort of capability like that. And, you know, one of my first big security jobs, I was lucky because I showed up and there was already a chief of staff, right? And different Mm -hmm. orgs call it different things, program manager or, you know, head project manager or whatever. But she was the one that was responsible for thinking about those non-technical things that are extremely important for every uh every right. program and vulnerability management, security awareness, right? These are examples of areas where the people and process component is arguably more important than the technical
1: aspect. Yes, transformational thing. Every transformation is people problem and security, I would argue, is a people problem right.
2: rather than a technology. And this is also why the cloud providers all have their version of a cloud adoption framework,
1: right? Mm-hmm. What are the things that you should do organizationally? Brilliant. Frank, it's been an absolute pleasure. Now that we're coming towards a close, we have a, a, a tradition on the show that is leaving everybody with a positive message or a message in cybersecurity or in, in the space that we have talked about. What will be the, your, your last thoughts on Uh, leaving everybody with with a fuzzy feeling, fuzzy and warm
2: feeling. (laughs) Uh, Well, hey, appreciate that. You know, hey, just think about, remind yourself, what is the journey that you're on from a personal perspective, from your own career perspective? What is the journey that your team is on? What's the journey that your organization is on? And hey, if you want to try to make the most impact, we already said it before, think about everybody's favorite radio station, WIFM, what's in it for me, what's in it for them? How could you help them actually get there? And it'll
1: make your life, that much easier from a security perspective. There you go. Advice on radio station and advice on how to get out of tricky conversation from Frank. Frank, before we leave, uh, where can people find more about you? Where, where do people uh, listen to your radio station? <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you want. Hey,
2: appreciate it. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn, Frank Kim on Twitter at FY Kim and uh, on the web at frankkim.net.
1: Brilliant. Thank you so much for coming to the show. It was a fantastic conversation. And everybody, I wish you all the best, stay safe, and always think about what's in it for other people and what's in it for cyber. It's always a hard sell, so hire more salespeople into your program (laughs) work. Frank, thank you very much. Everybody stay safe. Thank you. Thank you.
0: We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcast and post it on social media tagging Cybersecurity Cloud Podcast for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Discover other episodes at www.cybersecuritypodcast.com.